my consistent argument is this evidence-based inclusion allows us to raise our standards. And so diversity, inclusion, equity, belonging, however you want to describe these things, it stops being this airy-fairy, rhetoric, ambiguous thing going on in the organization. And it's actually something that helps people get the outcomes they want to be in line with their purpose. And it raises standards and these standards benefit everyone. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. We've spoken many times on the podcast about the challenges organizations face achieving diversity, equity, and inclusion and the ways traditional DEI efforts fall short. So joining me today is Dr. Jonathan Ashong Lamptey. Dr. Jonathan provides research, training, and consulting to make organizations inclusive through his consultancy, Element of Inclusion. He has a PhD from the London School of Economics and, for over a decade, has studied what works and what doesn't in creating inclusive workplaces. He calls this evidence-based inclusion. He is also the host of the Element of Inclusion podcast, a prolific writer, and a really interesting LinkedIn follow. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Jonathan. Mike, thank you so much for having me. Two things I want to mention. One, thank you for pronouncing my name correctly, perfectly. I really (laughs) appreciate that. And two, it's been a long-standing ambition of mine to be (laughs) here on the Good Morning HR podcast. So I am delighted to be here. You're too kind, and uh, but it's I, I appreciate you being here. Uh, we connected on LinkedIn some time ago, and uh, you've definitely enriched my LinkedIn feed, and uh, I've enjoyed a lot of, of the materials that you've shared. So I really wanted to get you on here to share with uh, our folks because, I mean, obviously, if anybody didn't notice, London School of Economics and that slight accent uh, you know, you're not from Texas. Uh, and so you being on the podcast, uh, is a scheduling, uh, challenge for both of us, but I'm, I'm glad you're here and you made the time. We really appreciate it. No, I appreciate you. And I'm here in London, excited, excited to be, and I've been to Texas once, I have to say. Well, that's, uh, you know, everybody gets to go to heaven at least once. And so there you go. (laughs) So when you're talking about inclusion, what is that? What are you talking about? And how is that different from the traditional diversity, equity, and inclusion that we hear about so often? Mike, I think that's a great question because I don't know what, you know, the people in your audience hear when people talk about diversity, inclusion, two of the most used and abused words in the workplace. So it may be useful if I talk about diversity first and then talk about inclusion, and then we can compare and contrast. So when we think of diversity, we think of it as a management approach that recognizes that as individuals, we have differences and there is value in those differences. A lot of the research calls that the value in difference hypothesis or value in diversity hypothesis. So we're recognizing that we're different and then that's a good thing. And there's opportunities that come with that. We can talk about that later. When we think of inclusion, 
We think of that as a systematic business strategy to ensure that everyone shares the same advantages and benefits. So the way we think of that is everyone can perform, everyone can belong, and everyone can reach their potential. So you'll notice I'm talking about diversity, I'm talking about inclusion, I'm not talking about equality, particularly at this moment in time. We tend to focus on the diversity and inclusion in a workplace context, but you'll notice that I I use the word management and I use the word business as well. That gives a sense of the context that I mean when I talk about diversity and inclusion. And I think probably in uh, in the UK uh, vernacular, what you're referencing is equality is what we would probably call equity in the US. Are those 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 terms roughly the same uh, uh, in both in both business cultures? Well, I I would say. Actually, we're probably more aligned than you think. So when people think of equity, in my experience, it's useful to think of that in terms of organizational justice. Is the organization fair? Okay. So a great, a great example of that would be procedural justice. So imagine, Mike, you and I, we go for a job interview. And what is the process? What is the process for me for getting the role? What is the process of the interview? Are we treated equally and the same? There'll be a number of procedures, right? In terms of how I'm interviewed, the questions that I'm asked. If you and I are treated differently, we can argue that there's a lack of procedural justice. We could argue that that's unfair. So when people talk about equity, particularly in this business context, that's what they tend to mean. And that's, that's the way I tend to address it. And to be really clear, when I think of inclusion, an inclusive organization is equitable in that sense. That makes sense. And I think, and I think I, I am totally on board with your definition of equity. I think a lot of times, and especially when DEI consultants get involved, equity morphs to something that's less about process and more about individuals recognizing uh, maybe their own faults or their own biases and uh, which I think there's value in, but it goes beyond it's, you know, it's almost, uh, you know, becomes a cross to bear uh, than, than, uh, than something to say, okay, I, I recognize this in my own behavior and here's what I'm going to do to put a process in place so that I avoid giving that bias uh, room to operate. Uh, so that's, I think that's that's my you know when I hear equity, I always want to pin down exactly what we're talking about there. I think you've made a an excellent point, Mike, which is what are the people talking about when they use these words? This is why I was so appreciative when you said, like, what do you mean when you say inclusion? So at least we've got a shared reference point. And if you disagree or if you don't understand, we can explore that. I think too often people use these words, they don't explain what they mean. And sometimes I think what you were alluding to earlier are the mic drop moments. So someone will say (laughs) maybe a provocative or controversial statement. They won't explain it. They'll drop the mic, walk away. And you're thinking, well, I know what that word means normally. I don't know if that's what you meant. And also now I haven't learned anything. I also don't know how to respond. And if that comes with some naming and shaming, it can be quite dissatisfying. I think that's what's contributing to some of the challenges we're experiencing when it comes to diversity and inclusion in the workplace. And so just to recap, make sure I've got this right. Uh, Diversity, when you're talking about diversity, you're talking about 
the the diversity of experiences and backgrounds that an org- organization welcomes in and and sees value in having that diversity. And the inclusion is an environment where everyone, regardless of their diversity, has the ability to succeed and excel. Absolutely. And if you think about diversity in terms of the differences that exist already, so we're not disputing it because so, some organizations want everyone to fit in and act the same and be the same. And so that means they don't necessarily want diversity. They want conformity. They want homogeneity, which sounds interesting mm-hmm. saying that in my accent, right? Yeah. But they want everybody <laughs> They want everybody to be the same. Whereas the reason I like to set it out like this, just at the very beginning, is so we're always recognizing that we have differences, which means at times we may need to treat people differently. The inclusion part is where we're concerned about how that is fair, if that is fair, what that looks like. And as a, you know, whether you're a business owner or a business leader, the goal is that, you know, you want the out, the positive business outcomes. And I think when, I think the way you approach it is, if you want to leverage this person's diversity for the best possible outcomes for the organization, then you need to understand this person's diversity and how best to help them succeed in the organization, given the role that they're in. Absolutely. And Mike, I think this reflects a bias of mine as well. So I'm in, well, in your language, you would call me a CPA. In the UK, I'm a chartered accountant. So I've worked for years with organizations, with profit-making organizations, and for the most part, and I used to be an auditor as well, so I've spent a lot of time in lots of different organizations. So I come from a context of where organizations are trying to achieve an outcome, they've got a purpose, and they're trying to do that in a way that's either profitable or there's a surplus, right? So we are trying to do more, be more, create more. And you've all... Actually, let's go back in time to the 80s. Let's go back in time. Um, that movie, Wall Street. Yeah. And you've heard people say greed is good. And that's Gordon the Gecko. real. Yeah. Absolutely. Gordon Gecko. And that's the real sharp end of what we would call the Friedman Doctrine, which is organizations exist to make profits. To So the biggest and greatest responsibility of, of an organization is to its shareholders. Now, whether you agree or disagree, that is what most organizations are set up to do. And so my description analysis, the way I think about inclusion is broadly aligned with that. It doesn't mean that it would only work in that context, but it works well in the reality that we've got. Sometimes when some of the people are using words like equity, sometimes I find that they're actually challenging the norm that we have now. So they're, they're, they're almost saying an organization doesn't or shouldn't exist just to make profit. It should exist to do other things. Maybe some people believe that organizations should exist in order to create justice or social justice in the world. And if you believe that, that would have a particular implication on the way that you thought about diversity, the way that you think about inclusion. I always invite people to make their own mind up. But once again, I use this clear language so that we can all find our own way and communicate effectively about what we mean, what we want, what we're trying to achieve. And I think it's interesting you say that. I I, I am intrigued and agree with a lot of what I, I read in the conscious capitalism genre. You know, I think, you know, there's, it's true that businesses have, uh, 
uh, stakeholders beyond only their shareholders. I mean, we've got impacts on people. Uh, we've got impacts on our community. We've got impacts, uh, you know, certainly government regulations were accountable to it, all those other stakeholders. And I think you can serve all those stakeholders and still hit the organization's mission, whether if, if you're a for-profit business, you know, uh, creating, you know, wealth for, for, for shareholders. I think that's possible. Or if you're a nonprofit, you know, executing the mission of the organization, whatever it is, but you know, that's still got to happen along with all those other stakeholders. And I think you're right. Often, uh, some of the, the bigger social concerns and, uh, and, and the first, you know, the desired social justice outcomes in some of these conversations become greater than the execution of, the business's mission, whatever that is. And I think, I think we're beginning to see more and more pushback to that after the, we really swung to, you know, uh, to an extreme in that the last three or four years. Uh, I think we're seeing it, you know, a lot of businesses, especially as finances get tighter are reexamining some of that and saying, okay, we, we still want to do good, but at the same time, we've got to execute on our mission. So I think that's a, uh, Something, you know, I think that ship is kind of riding itself. But when you're talking, you talk a lot about evidence-based. So how does, you know, where does the evidence come from? And, but, and how does that differ from a lot of the other programs or initiatives that, that companies put in place to achieve their inclusion goals? Well, let's think about what you just said about the last few years and the way organizations have been responding to diversity and inclusion, and we'll use those terms. Sure. For the most part, it was a reaction. 2020, murder of George Floyd, there was a huge reaction. We were all at home. Well, most of us were in, in the UK. Right. We were certainly all at home. And we were all staring at our screens. It was it was an unusual time. And I think my, my strong feeling is that if it hadn't been the lockdown, we wouldn't have had the the reaction that we had. And therefore... As a reminder, organizations, first they were talking about race, racism, and, and the injustice of racism. And then organizations felt that they had to say something. So this was my experience. Employees in organizations felt that their leaders should say something. Then they did. They started to make quite empty statements, frankly. They were saying things like racism is bad, Racism is wrong. We, it's not enough to be, to not be racist. You need to be anti-racist. But they don't look know how much what I care. Anti- I made my Instagram square black, right? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, the black square. But we don't know what anti-racism means. We haven't really got a good sense of what racism means. We're just reacting and saying these words, and so they tended to go down this path that we call flags, food, and fun, which is flags. We're going to celebrate a day. So today, nearly every day is a particular day, and we're going to celebrate diversity. So whether it's uh, Black History Month, whether it's Cinco de Mayo, we're going to we're going to celebrate something, which is great. But they tend not to celebrate those people when it's time for a promotion, when it's time for retention. It's always just you know we're going to have a party. Food is another thing. We're going to have make sure that we've got food. It's always going to be a party and a celebration. And this is where you see pictures of people smiling on websites all of the time. And this was a mainstream narrative. This was a mainstream tactic. The problem is 
It didn't, as you said earlier, align with any missions for an organization. It didn't do anything. And so this is part of the context, Mike, that you that you've discussed, but there's no evidence that it works. And in fact, <laughs> there's been billions, billions spent on diversity and inclusion narratives, inclusion initiatives, and nothing has happened. So I take a very different approach. So when I say evidence-based inclusion, we think of that once again as a process. So it's a decision-making process to help nurture inclusion where you work. And we've already said what we broadly mean by inclusion. So what do we do with that? Well, you said, where do we get the evidence? I always say we need to get that from four key sources. One is the scientific literature. That is the research. What does the research say about the issue that you have? So suppose it's retention, suppose it's recruitment, suppose it's promotion. We don't know, but in this hypothetical example, we're going to look and see what the research says. The next thing we're going to do is look at the organization itself. What data do we have that we can turn into evidence to help us inform us about the issue that we're trying to understand? So if we're saying that we don't have enough black senior leaders, what's the evidence to show that? What's the evidence to show that it's an issue? And is there anything to suggest that there are clues about how we can address that? The next thing is stakeholders, which is very convenient given the conversation that we had. Just We're talking about shareholders and broader stakeholders. Who are the stakeholders? And when I think of that, who are the people specifically impacted by the decision that you want to make? And then the final one is professional expertise. I tend to think of that as your professional expertise, but it's also useful to think about in terms of others, experts. I read a lot of books because it allows me to tap into the expertise of others. So these are four key sources, Mike, that I recommend people try and gather insights from, gather evidence from in order to make better decisions. And so it's not just, for lack of a better term, a motive. Uh, It's not just gut instinct or this seems fair or you know you're 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 gathering information from a lot of different sources now one of the things you hear a lot and you know there's the replicability crisis in social science and um the and so but there there are you hear a lot about you know it seems like there are a handful of studies that get thrown around a lot or you know outcomes where they point to well you know, the business case for diversity is simple because diverse organizations clearly perform better. Um, and I, you know, I, because I've listened to your podcast and read, read your stuff on LinkedIn, I know you've got some thoughts about that. So, so talk about that kind of research or those kind of claims that, that claim to be research-based and, and the reality of, of what we should be when we're making that business case, what, what is, what is the real evidence for what we ought to be arguing to our leaders? Yes, that's a great question. So there's two points I want to raise. So let's talk about the business case for diversity first. So as you've said, and, and members of your audience will have heard people say, there is a business case for diversity. And let's pick an example of the McKinsey report. They had a report called Diversity Matters. And in that report, they showed that organizations that had greater diversity, which means gender diversity and ethnic or racial diversity in senior leadership roles, had greater earnings before income and tax. Okay, so there was a correlation between the two. And so that is what people go around saying 
This proves right. it. There's, this is the business case of diversity. Here's the so evidence. They're claiming causation, even though it's just correlation. Absolutely. And Mike, you're one of the few people who ever brings that up. No one ever brings it up. No one will draw the distinction. And just to be really clear for the audience, so the, we're talking about correlation, which is what they found. So they don't know whether increased diversity causes greater profits or greater profits causes increased diversity. The research says that, and, and they're very explicit in the reports. I say explicit. It's it's not at the front page. It's not in the executive summary. Right. But it it is there if you There's looked. a footnote there someplace. Yeah. Yeah, somewhere. You can find it. You can find it. So that's one thing. This and then there's co- sorry, then there's causation, which is diversity causes um well, let me go the other way around. Yeah, no, I was right the first time. Diversity mm-hmm. causes greater profits, causes greater outcomes, causes innovation. What you will find is that the body of research doesn't support that. So you're right. We could find one, two, ten, a hundred research papers, a hundred articles, which would show that there's a business case for diversity in a specific organization, in a specific context. What we don't find is if we look at all the research, we don't find evidence to support that. In fact, the evidence is inconclusive. This is something that people don't talk about. So the mainstream diversity narratives completely ignore this. And so going back to your earlier point, when you're looking at research, what should you do? I like meta-studies. And when I say meta-studies, these are studies of the studies. So it gives you a sense of the broader research. So instead of looking at one research paper, you get to look at a research paper that's analyzing hundreds, maybe even thousands. And to take it a, a step further, some of those papers could be studies of other meta-studies. And so you start to get a real sense of what the body of research says. So if anybody wants to understand what does the research say about my particular issue, about recruitment, about retention, about how to hire more people of a particular demographic in my organization, look at what the research says, but look for meta-studies or review papers, that's another name for them. That's going to give you a better sense of what the body of research says. That helps you to get more useful evidence. That helps you to make better decisions and decide how much of that is applicable to you. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. Many employers, if they ask at all, only ask applicants about their criminal history in the past seven years. And most background screening companies only provide employers with criminal convictions within the past seven years, ignoring even significant records that may be relevant to the employer. Under federal law, criminal convictions can be considered by employers or included in background checks, regardless of how old they are. A few states do have their own limits about what can be included in a background check or what information an employer can consider, but most states don't have such limits. If you're hiring a CFO, you would probably want to know that your candidate was convicted of embezzlement eight years ago. Or if you're hiring a home service worker, the fact that he was convicted of attempted murder may be relevant, even if it was eight years ago. That is why Imperative includes everything that we can legally report and that our clients can legally use in our background checks. This ensures that our clients get the information necessary to make well-informed and legal decisions about the people they involve in their business. You can learn more at imperativeinfo.com. 
HRCI.com. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for three quarters of a recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Research Credits. Then select episode 118 and enter the keyword evidence. That's E-V-I-D-E-N-C-E. And now back to my conversation with Dr. Jonathan Ashong Lamptey. Because you've looked at these studies, is it possible that those those organizations that have the correlation, that they, you know, they're high-performing organizations, they've got, they've got the outcome, the better outcomes, and they are also happen to at least be you know more diverse? Could that could both of those two things be true simply because of, of the leadership and culture of those organizations that they've got leadership that you know maybe is you know has a a, a natural appreciation for inclusion uh, and, and, and has a leadership culture that trains and coaches and builds up people, uh, doesn't see employees as cogs in a machine. And so that would result in a more diverse outcome. But also, I think, uh, you know, I think the studies are out there, the support out there, that better leadership produces better outcomes. I think you're completely right. The challenge is none of us can prove it. None of us can prove it on, on, a, on a generic level. And so when I say speak to organizations, I say, don't, don't inherit, don't adopt a generic business case for diversity, because if, if you can't find a business case for diversity for yourself, one will be found for you. And this speaks to everything that we discussed earlier. Someone is going to tell you that you need to be doing this, you need to be doing that. And so you're then adopting something that might not work for you. So let me give you an example. So when people, I'm going to give you an example based in the UK, which you might find interesting. It might feel a bit of a novelty, actually, for the members of your audience. So if you think of the BBC, the BBC is a national broadcaster in the UK, and they're state-sponsored. Actually, like we're all forced to pay a tax, a license fee. Um, if you if you buy a laptop, if you buy a TV, you start getting letters saying that you need to pay this. So that aside, the point I really want to make is that everyone contributes. Everyone contributes to the BBC. And the BBC themselves position themselves as serving the nation. And they want to, therefore, they want to represent the nation. So when we think about diversity, a useful way for the BBC to think about their business case for diversity is to represent the population of the UK, right? A a really similar argument could be said for any government body in any country, in any state, right? That's very different from what we've just described as greater diversity leads to greater profits. That's not really aligned with what the BBC is trying to do. But if if we've got a different organization we want to we want to make more profits because we're growing in a particular market. These are two different arguments. So the BBC argument is something called access and legitimacy. We look legitimate, but we can also it also helps us to access the market that we are trying to represent. And this is when you hear people you hear this language. We want to represent our customers. We want to represent our clients. We want to represent the communities we serve. On the other hand. The things like the McKinsey report, they're really talking about something called integration and learning. 
And this is the idea that we are going to take all these differences, we're going to learn from it, and we're going to leverage it. And we're going to get more of what we want or less of what we want. We're going to reduce costs. We're going to increase innovation. So this is when you hear this narrative. More, pro more problem-solving abilities, less groupthink, more innovation, more creativity. These are two really stark contrasts, but it gives an example of why, and this is what I tell clients, you should think about what diversity inclusion means for you so that you can choose your own narrative. And then I'd encourage you to explore that instead of inheriting what the McKinsey report says or what this diversity expert says, always try and find your own business case. So look at the mission of the organization and figure out where we, you know, whether we're, we're, we're standing in our own way or we've got opportunities to grow in a certain area to succeed, figure that out and figure out what resources we need, you know, what human resources we need that we don't have or which ones we have that we're not developing right uh, to get what we want out of them and, and, and pursue it from that point of view. Absolutely. And real, real practical example. I'm in London, you're in Texas. Let's pretend I want to start a business in Texas. Would it be useful for me to have people who are Texans, are people who understand the cultural norms of business in Texas, of people who maybe even sound, you've, you've got the accent, I sound very different. You know, I understand some of the, the language that's used, the business terms that are used. Earlier, you talked about, you know, is equity and equality, does that mean the same thing here and there? Would it be useful if I understood what that meant in Texas? And so that would give me a reasonable argument and an understanding of what diversity could mean for me if my mission is to start a business or move to Texas. Because as you said, everybody gets to go to heaven once. <laughs> and you know the um, we had on the podcast well over a year ago, Dion Harrison, who's uh, runs marketing for a financial services company here in in Texas, and but is also there instead of the HR person being the chief diversity officer, he is, and it's uh, because their design their main focus is designing their products to set, you know, meet the needs of the communities they serve, which tend to be lower income and underserved communities. And so their interest in diversity isn't counting noses. Their interest in diversity is what products can we develop and how do we do our needs assessment if our people don't understand those communities. And so I think that, that you're probably, uh, I'm definitely going to, I'll send you his podcast and, and I'll send him this one because I think y'all are on the same page. But is there a moral argument then for diversity? I mean, does an, you know, does an organization have a moral responsibility? And maybe I'm asking you to be an ethicist beyond uh, you know, the, the direction you want to go, but is, do you think that exists? I think this is a question for society, isn't it? Because I, I spoke about two business cases, didn't I? I spoke about access and legitimacy. I spoke about integration and learning. But there's a third one which is discrimination and fairness, that tends to be aligned with the legal obligations. So when we say a moral argument, for the most part, organizations will do the minimum that they can to be in line with the legislation. And so I think this is a legitimate 21st century problem. I, th I think that organizations have an obligation to be ethical and have an obligation to, and this is my economics background, recognize the stakeholders 
that are beyond the ones that they're legally obliged to mm-hmm. respond to, to have to deal with, to acknowledge. I think I think that's the case. We're in a world where the nature of organizations are changing themselves. One of the things we say in our organization is that people are the most important part of any organization. I feel as if AI and ChatGPT are determined to undermine that belief. I still think people are important. I actually think that AI and everything else makes people more important. But we can't argue with the fact that some people may not have a role in that organization anymore. Maybe there's going to be other organizations. And so I'm I'm actually wrestling with this question of what is the purpose of an organization and what does that mean? Sometimes, and once again, we're coming onto the edges of my knowledge and understanding, but I think of things like blockchain technology, if we're in a world where we don't even need to have organizations existing indefinitely, some organizations would almost appear as projects. And once that Mm -hmm. thing is done and it's administered in a particular way, it disappears. So, and, and some of those decisions will be decentralized. Whereas historically, we've had hierarchical organizations, people at the top are older, more experienced, They've got real long-term knowledge of a particular field. They've got that real know-how. And that's not always the case anymore. So I, I don't have a complete answer for that, but I definitely do think that organizations need to consider more than shareholders. They do need to consider stakeholders. And I think we're in a world where that, that can change very quickly. And in some cases, it's month to month. And... You know, you're, you're an economist, and and I play one on TV sometimes. But the uh, the idea that that you know we do companies just in almost anything we do, there are externalities, and there there are costs to other stakeholders. And at a minimum, I think we have to pay attention to the impact of whatever we're doing, whether it's implementing uh, you know a generative AI and and that that replaces you know copywriters in our organization or something like that doesn't mean it's a wrong thing to do but I think we need to to do those things whatever our, our business decisions are we need to think about who is this going to impact uh, just from a good business you know just to make the business case for whatever we want to do what are the what are the externalities and what are the impacts and and what will those mean down the line, long term, uh, to the organization and and to the you know to the greater community that we aspire to be a part of? So, I think that makes you know I think what you're saying is can you know is that part at least is solid. Now, you know what is the role of the organization in remediating past injustices? Uh, and I think a l- too much is put on employers. Uh, too much, too, the expectations are too high sometimes of employers to correct things that came out of a failing uh, education system. I mean, by the time somebody is 18, 19, 20 years old, there are certain skills that an employer can't afford to teach someone. But we're asking, you know, and, and much like we ask police officers and teachers to cure social ills. That they're not equipped, you know, that, that are outside of their their ability to truly impact, uh, and so I think that's where the the moral argument gets really weak as far as what an employer's responsibilities are. Uh, that's me on a soapbox. If you've got something else to say there, I just no, I love that. I, I, but, yeah. I love that, and and you're actually making me think perhaps we need new organizations to solve that that market failure. So 
mm-hmm. talking about you being an economist, you're talking about externalities. Um, and for those who aren't as familiar about what an externality is, it's useful to think of that as an external cost that the organization isn't directly responsible for. Uh, so if you think of pollution, all of these issues, it's a huge challenge. But I, I think we can argue that there are some externalities that come from the way an organization conducts itself in who it hires you know, and, and what they do. And you've really made me think that if we're in this brave new world, and I think of Star Trek as my, that, that's my mission in terms of an inclusive society. Uh, what they've done, they've skipped over the hard work of what, <laughs> yeah. you know, having that we've just arrived and everyone's treating each other fairly, but they're in a post scarcity economy. Exactly. And when you were talking about the technology, you made me realize and think I read a book called Abundance once. And in this book, it said that technology is a resource liberating mechanism. Mm-hmm. So if you bought into that, it means that at any given point, and we are HR, right? Human resources. At some point, the human resources will be liberated. To do what is actually, I think, one of the fundamental issues that we have. But we know that we can use the technology to do some of the tasks that the humans were doing. So I think we've got a whole new problem about, and let me rephrase that. We've got a whole new opportunity about what the purpose of an individual is. And this is why I like my whole Star Trek idea, because in that world, we're all working on something that's aligned with our values. We're not concerned about how much money we need to make. It's something that we're willing and able to get good at. And maybe, maybe, Mike, we're moving towards a world where that becomes more realistic. And I'm I'm kind of hoping that, but I think we've got some of the dirty work to do before we get there. What does the evidence tell us about how to achieve inclusion in an organization then? So what does that look like? I mean, you know, we've um, we've kind of danced around it, but you know, if if I if I want to measure the level of inclusion and and then adjust it, what does the evidence say about what really works? Well, what I would say is there there are loads of measures for inclusion that are statistically valid that you can go out and check and use. Anyone, anyone can do them. In fact, what I find is most organizations don't. They just pull something together. Do you feel included? And all of these types of things. So I, that is something that organizations can do. What I found is, I'll flip it the other way around. I found that organizations have three big problems. And if you address these problems, you can become, you get to have an inclusive organization. And if you don't, you don't. And so the first one is what we call people. Organizations struggle to engage the people that they want to include. Now, typically, that's characterized as being people who are underrepresented, people who are marginalized, but it also means the people who are not from a minority group, who are part of a majority. The word privilege gets thrown around a lot as well. But there are people who have privilege. There are people who don't. In any given circumstance or context, we have or have not privilege in our lives. The whole key is, how do we engage everyone in your organization to do that? What I find is once you've found a narrative and an understanding of the people in your organization and how that works for you, you get closer to this inclusive Star Trek world that I keep dreaming about. The next thing is an inclusive culture. 
it, we, we call that uh, potential, creating a culture of inclusion where everyone can reach their potential. And when, when people say that, what does that mean? But you, earlier, Mike, you spoke about some organizations have got these generative cultures where people are valued, the decision-making processes are transparent, we've got fairness. When people feel that they're in a culture where they can thrive, that is when you get closer to inclusion. So a couple of things that always come up. One is this idea of psychological safety, and that works really well in teams. And so think of psychological safety as an environment where people feel that they can learn, they can challenge, they can question without being humiliated, without being ostracized. They can ask questions and they can grow. And so if you've got psychological safety, that is typically indicative of an inclusive team or an inclusive organization. And there's, there's, there's a lot of research around this as well. I like uh, the stuff from Dr. Timothy Clark. He's got a book called Four Stages of Psychological Safety, which I think is really good and really useful. So I always recommend that. And the third thing, I, well, actually, I want to come up, I want to talk about belonging as well, because you may have heard people talk about belonging. Yeah, that's the new one, D-E-I and B. Yeah, yeah. And so I want to go back to this idea of, the data and the evidence, what does the research say? So this is, this is what I've, I've seen and observed with organizations. You've got these organizations who say they've made up a, a scale to measure inclusion and they score really well. They get 80% scores and they say, we're inclusive. This is great. We've, we've done it. But what typically happens is they'll speak to a few people and people will say, I don't think it's inclusive. I don't feel as if I belong. And so people, okay, what, you don't belong. So, but the scores tell us we're inclusive. So maybe it's belonging. So in, the, we've got an issue here. The issue is, Mike, they're not actually recording or measuring inclusion properly because remember what I said about these meta studies? Remember what mm -hmm. I said about the research? Mm -hmm. The research says that belonging is actually part of inclusion. And when we say belonging, that's an ambiguous term, isn't it? Right. It's, yeah. It's, it's more useful to think of belonging in terms of acceptance, group acceptance. When you think about it in that way. So when we're saying, do I belong? We're not saying it's your family, but do you work in a team where you are accepted for who you are and you're able to contribute? Now add on that psychological safety part. Can you see how this becomes actually a practically useful way to measure and understand inclusion as opposed to some random words that we don't understand? And all of these things can be measured as well. So the, these are a couple of things that I would look for. The third thing, we've talked about it already, is this idea of the business case for diversity. We call it performance. And what we say is organizations struggle to articulate a business case for diversity for their specific organization. And that's what we've been discussing earlier. Find your own one instead of just relying on other people. So my argument is people, potential performance, and this is based on my evidence-based approach. So it's backed up by the research, it's backed up by data from stakeholders, it's backed up by my experience, and it's backed up by data I've had from organizations. That's what it tells me. If you address that, you get closer to inclusion. But it's not a one-size-fits-all, copy-and-paste, cookie-cutter. You do need to find it for yourself. So 
to wrap up then, what if if I'm a leader in an organization that really wants to work on inclusion, and I know it's not, it can't just be, you know, the the boardroom paying attention to it. It's got to filter through all the organization. When I'm working with, you know, lower level management or even employee selection processes, what skills or characteristics ought I be looking for or trying to develop uh, in, 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 in all my teams in order to really create that, incul- uh, that inclusive culture? Yeah, that's a great point. I always look for people who are willing to learn, willing to change, and also to be persistent. And if you're open-minded as well with all of this, then this becomes quite straightforward. Because everything we're talking about here, in order to make progress, is, is quite repetitive, unremarkable, almost to some degree boring experiences. Mm. In the same way, look, brushing our teeth, it's not an event that we talk about. It's something we do all the time. When we don't do it, there's consequences. We might not notice it now, but it'll be a problem later. So I tell people to be open-minded. And so you can learn. Figure out what diversity and inclusion means to you, but you need to be willing to do the work. You need to keep your mind open, and you also need to be willing to change your mind about things. So this is what I thought diversity was. Now I'm going to change my mind. I've collected evidence I, uh, from these four sources. I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to think differently about that. Even I'm going to think differently about myself. I'm going to think differently about that group of people who I previously used to think mm-hmm. had these characteristics or didn't have these characteristics. I'm willing to change my mind about that. And I think that's really important just to, to be consistent. So It's an unremarkable, unsexy response, but I think that's, when I look at what the actual work is and what it takes, that is consistently my my finding, my observation. How important is it that individuals recognize their own biases in doing that, you know, in trying to reach out versus just creating structures that make it difficult for biases to impact outcomes. Yeah, I think it's a combination of both because you've heard people talk about unconscious bias training. Mm -hmm. And once again, what I've observed is that it doesn't have an impact. What the research says is that it doesn't have an impact. I think the research even shows that the measurements aren't very good. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's huge challenges there. Is there such a thing as bias? Yes. Should we be aware of our bias? Yes. And and I think I do a lot to volunteer my bias. Even during this conversation, I've told you what my background is and why that influences my thinking. And so when I come up against something that may challenge or influence that, one, I volunteered it so you can now help me. And so I think it's useful for us to be aware of our biases, absolutely. And going back to the idea of procedural justice, what Mm -hmm. the procedures are there in order to mitigate our individual biases, I think that's also important. I'm concerned about when people try to delegate all of this to bias, because I think sometimes it's used as a get-out-of-jail card or it's used as an alibi to not actually have to proactively do the work for these things. And so whilst I want to acknowledge it, I want to recognize it and... I'm not saying don't do unconscious bias training, but 
in any other field, if if we had something that we knew didn't give us the outcomes that we were looking for, would we continue to do that? And the answer is no. You've used the word business case several times during this conversation, and so. I think we should we should always be we should we should maintain our standards and my consistent argument is this evidence based inclusion allows us to raise our standards and so diversity inclusion equity belonging however you want to describe these things it stops being this airy fairy rhetoric ambiguous thing going on in the organization and it's actually something that helps people get the outcomes they want to be in line with their purpose and it raises standards and these standards benefit everyone. That is a perfect place to end. Thank you for joining me today, Jonathan. Thank you so much. You have made my lifelong dream come true. (laughs) And thank you for listening. You can comment on this episode or search our previous episodes at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and you can reach him at robmakespods.com. And as always, thank you to Imperatives Marketing Coordinator, Marianne Hernandez, who keeps the trains running on time. And I'm Mike Coffey. Don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week. And until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up. <laughs>